Chapter twenty five of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter twenty five. About six months, and how a cabman saw a ghost of Sally's and the doctor's modus vivendi, and the Shoesmith family. How Sally made tea for Buddha, and how Buddha foresaw a stepdaughter. Delirium Tremens. It may make this story easier to read at this point if we tell our reader that this twenty-fifth chapter contains little of vital import, is in fact only a passing reference to one or two by-incidents that came about in the half-year that followed. He cannot complain that they are superfluous if we give him fair warning of their triviality, and enable him to skip them without remorse, but they register to our thinking what little progress events made in six very nice months a period time may be said to have skipped and whoso will may follow his example and lose but little in the doing of it very nice months they were only one cloud worth mention in the blue only one phrase in a minor key the old familiar figure of the major intermittent certainly but none the less invariable making the house his own, or letting it appropriate him, hard to say which, was no longer to be seen. But the old sword had been hung in a place of honour near a portrait of Paul Nightingale, Mrs. Fenwick's stepfather, its old owner's school-friend of seventy years ago. At her death it was to be offered to the school. No surviving relative was named in the will, if any existed. Everything was left unconditionally to my dear daughter by adoption, Rosalind Nightingale. Some redistributions of furniture were involved in the importation of the movables from the two rooms in Ball Street. The black cabinet or cellaret with the eagle talons found a place in the dining-room in the basement into which Fenwick, only it seems so odd to go back to it now, was brought on the afternoon of his electrocution. Sally always thought of this cabinet as Major Roper's cabinet, because she got the whisky from it for him before he went off in the fog. If only she had made him drunk that evening, who knows but it might have enabled him to fight against the terrible heart failure that was not the result of atmospheric conditions. She never looked at this cabinet, but the thought passed through her mind. Her mother certainly told her nothing at this time about her last conversation with the Colonel, or almost nothing. Certainly she mentioned more than once what she thought a curious circumstance, that the invalid, who was utterly ignorant of old Jack's death, had persisted so strongly that he was present in the room when he must have been dead some hours. Every one of us has his little bit of psychical research, which he demands respect for from others, whose own cherished private instances he dismisses without investigation. This example became Mrs. Fenix, who, to be just, had not set herself up with one previously, in spite of the temptation the Anglo-Indian is always under to espouse Mahatmas and buried fakirs and the like, there seemed a good prospect that it would become an article of faith with her, her first verdict that it was a hallucination having been undermined by a certain contradictiousness produced in her by an undeserved discredit poured on it by pretenders to a superior ghost insight, who, after all, tried to utilise it afterward as a peg to hang their own particular ghosts on, which wasn't researching fair. 
Sally was no better than the rest of them. If anything, she was a little worse. And Rosalind was far from sure that her husband wouldn't have been much more reasonable if he hadn't had Sally there to encourage him. As it was, the League became, pro hac vice, a League of Incredulity, a syndicate of materialists. Rosalind got no quarter for the half-belief she had in what the old Colonel had said on his deathbed. Her report of his evident earnestness and the self-possession of his voice carried no weight. Failing powers, delirium, effects of opiates, and ten degrees above normal, had it all their own way. Besides, her superstition was weak-kneed. It only went the length of suggesting that it really was very curious when you came to think of it, and she couldn't make it out. That the incident received such very superficial recognition must be accounted for by the fact that Krakatoa Villa was not a villa of the speculative thinker class. We have known such villas elsewhere, but we are bound to say we have known none where speculative thought has tackled the troublesome questions of deathbed appearances, haunted houses, et id genus omne, with the result of coming to any but very speculative conclusions. The male head of this household may have felt that he himself, as a problem for the psychical researcher, was ill-fitted to discuss the subject. He certainly shied off expressing any decided opinions. "'What do you really think about ghosts?' said his wife to him one day, when Sally wasn't there to come in with her chaff. "'Ghosts belong in titled families. Middle-class ghosts are a poor lot. Those in the army and navy cut the best figure on the whole. Junior United Service ghosts.' "'Jerry, be serious, or I'll have a divorce.' This was a powerful grip on a stinging nettle. Rosalind felt braced by the effort. "'Did you ever see a ghost, old man?' "'Not in the present era, sweetheart. I can't say about B.C.' He used to speak of his life in this way, but his wife always felt sorry when he alluded to it. It seldom happened. "'No, I've never seen one to my knowledge. I've been seen as a ghost, though, which is very unpleasant, I assure you.' Rosalind's mind went back to the fat baron at Sonnenberg. She supposed this to be another case of the same sort. "'When was that?' she said. "'Monday. I took a hansom from Cornhill to our bonded warehouse. It's under a mile, and I asked the driver to change half a crown. I hadn't a shilling. He got out a handful of silver, and when he had picked out the two shillings and sixpence, he looked at me for the first time, and started and stared as if I was a ghost in good earnest.' "'Oh, Jerry, he must have seen you before. Before it happened.' "'Remember that this was, in the spirit of it, a fib, seeing that the tone of voice was that of welcome to a possible revelation. To our thinking, the more honour to her who spoke it, considering the motives.' Jerry continued. "'So I thought at first, but listen to what followed.' As soon as his surprise, whatever caused it, had toned down to mere recognition point, he spoke with equanimity. "'I've driven you afore now, mister,' said he. "'You won't call me to mind. Parties don't, not when fares, when drivers quite otherwise. I'm by way of taking notice myself. You'll excuse me?' Then he said, "'Warp!' to the horse, who was trying to eat himself and dig the road up. When they were friends again, I asked, where had he seen me? Might I happen to call to mind Livermore's rents, and that turn up? That was his reply. I said I mightn't, or didn't, at any rate. I'd never been near Livermore's rents, nor anyone else's rents, that I could recall the name of. Try again, Governor, said he. 
You'll recall if you try hard enough. He recollects it. I'll go bail. My God, you did let him have it. Was it a fight, I asked? Well, do you know, darling, that cabby addressed me seriously, took me to task for want of candour. That ain't worthy of a governor like you, he said. Why make any concealments? Why not treat me open? I gave him my most solemn honour that I was utterly at a loss to guess what he was talking about, on which he put me through a sort of retrospective catechism, broken by reminders to the horse. "'You don't recollect going easy over the bridge for to see the shipping? Nor yet the little narrow court right-hand side of the road, with an iron post under an arch, and parties hollering murder at the far end? Nor yet the way you held him in hand and played him? Nor yet what you sampled him out at a finish?' "'My God!' He slapped the top of the cab in a sort of ecstasy. "'Never saw a neater thing in my life. No unnecessary violence, no agitation. And him carried off to the ground as good as dead. Ah, I made inquiry after, and that was so.' I then said it must have been someone else very like me, and held out my half-crown. He slipped back his change into his own pocket, and when he had buttoned it over ostentatiously, addressed me again with what seemed a last appeal. "'I take it, Governor,' said he, "'you may have such a powerful list of fighting fixtures in the week that you don't easily recollect one out from the other. But now, do you mean to say your memory don't serve you in this? I drove you over to Bishopsgate, cross London Bridge. Very well. Then you brought an hat, white Panama.' and took change, seeing your own was lost, and you was going to pay me, and I drove off, refusing to accept a farden under the circumstances. Don't you recollect that? I said I didn't. Well, I did, said he, and with your leave I'll do the same thing now. I'll drive you most anywhere you'd like to name in reason, but I won't take a farden. And do you know, he was off before my surprise allowed me to say a word. "'Now, Jerry, was it that made you so glum on Monday when you came back? "'I recollect quite well. So would Sally.' "'Oh, no, it was uncomfortable at first, but I soon forgot all about it. "'I recollect what it was put me in the dumps quite well. "'It was a long time after the cabby.' "'What was it?' "'Well, it was as I walked to the station. "'I went a little way round and passed through an anonymous sort of churchyard. "'I saw a box in a wall with contributions on it.' and remembering that I really had no right to the cabby's shilling or eighteenpence, I dropped a florin in. And then, Rosie dear, I had the most horrible recurrence I've had for a long time. Something about the same place, and the same box, and someone else putting three shillings in it. And it was all mixed up with a bottle of champagne and a bank. I can't explain why these things are so painful, but they are. You know, Rosie. I know, dear. His wife's knowledge seemed to make her quite silent and absent. She may have seen that the recovery of this cabman would supply a clue to her husband's story. Had he taken the number of the cab? No, he hadn't. Very stupid of him. But he had no pencil, or he could have written it on his shirt-sleeve. He couldn't trust his memory. Rosie didn't feel very sorry the clue was lost. As for him, did he, we wonder, really exert himself to remember the cab's number. But when the story was told afterwards to Sally, the moment the Panama hat came on the tapis, she struck in with, 
"'Jeremiah, you know quite well you had a Panama hat on the day you were electrocuted. "'And what's more, it was brand new. "'And what's more, it's outside in the hall.' "'It was brought in, and produced a spurious sense of being detectives on the way to a discovery. "'But nothing came of it. "'All through the discussion of this odd cab incident, "'the fact that Fenwick would have written down the cab-driver's number on his shirt-sleeve was on the watch for a recollection by one of the three that a something had been found written on the shirt-cuff Fenwick was electrocuted in. The ill-starred shrewdness of Scotland Yard, by detecting a mere date in that something, had quite thrown it out of gear as an item of evidence. By the way, did no one ever ask why should any man, being of sound mind, write the current date on his shirt-sleeve? It really is a thing that can look after its own interests for twenty-four hours. The fact is that no sooner do coincidences come into court than sane investigation flies out at the skylight. There was much discussion of this incident, you may be sure. But that is all we need to know about it. Our other chance gleanings of the half-year are in quite another part of the field. They relate to Sally and Dr. Vereker's relation to one another. If this relation had anything lover-like in it, they certainly were not taking Europe into their confidence on the subject. Whether their attitude was a spontaneous expression of respectful indifference, or a parti pris to mislead and hoodwink her, of course Europe couldn't tell. All that that continent, or the subdivision of it known as Shepherd's Bush, could see was a parade of callousness and studied civility on the part of both. The only circumstance that impaired its integrity or made the bystander doubt the good faith of its performers was the fact that one of them was a girl, and an attractive one, so attractive that elderly ladies jumped meanly at the supposed privileges of their age and sex, and kissed her a great deal more than was at all fair or honourable. The ostentatious exclusion of Cupid from the relationship of these two demanded a certain mechanism. Every meeting had to be accounted for, or there was no knowing what matchmaking busybodies wouldn't say, or rather what they would say would be easily guessable by the lowest human insight. Not that either of them ever mentioned precaution to the other. All its advantages would have vanished with open acknowledgment of its necessity. These arrangements were instinctive on the part of both, and each credited the other with a mole-like blindness to their existence. For instance, each was graciously pleased to believe, or at least to believe that the other believed, in a certain institution that called for a vast amount of checking of totals, comparisons of counterfoils, inspection of certificates, verification of data, everything, in short, of which an institute is capable that could make incessant correspondence necessary and frequent personal interviews advisable. It could boast of heaven knows how many titled patrons and patronesses, committees and subcommittees, referees and auditors. No doubt the mere mention of such an institution was enough to render gossip speechless about any single lady and gentleman whom it accidentally made known to one another. Its firm of solicitors alone, with a line all to itself in its prospectuses, was enough to put a host of loves to flight. On which account Anne at Krakatoa Villa, when she announced, "'A person for you, Miss Sally,' was able to add, "'from Dr. Vereker, I think, Miss,' without the faintest shade of humorous reserve, as of one who sees, 
and does not need to be told. And when Sally had interviewed a hopeless and lopsided female, who appeared to be precariously held together by pins, and to have an almost superhuman power of evading practical issues, she, fortified by this institution, was able to return to the drawing-room and say, without a particle of shame, that she supposed she should have to go and see old Prosy about Mrs. Shoesmith to-morrow afternoon. And when she called at the doctor's at tea-time, because that didn't take him from his patients, as he made a point of his tea because of his mother, if it was only ten minutes, both he and she believed religiously in Mrs. Shoesmith, and Dr. Vereker filled out her form, we believe we have the phrase right, with the most business-like gravity at the little table where he wrote his letters. Mrs. Shoesmith's form called for filling out in more senses than one. The doctor's mother's form would not have borne anything further in that direction, except indeed she had been provided with hooks to go over her chair-back and keep her from rolling along the floor, as a sphere might, if asked to sit down. A suggestion of the exceptional character of all visits from Sally to Dr. Vereker, and vice versa, was fostered by the domestics at his house, as well as at Krakatoa Villa. The maid Craddock, who responded to Sally's knock on this Shoesmith occasion, threw doubt on the possibility of the doctor ever being visible again, and kept the door mentally on the jar, while she spoke through a moral gap an inch wide. Of course, that is only our nonsense. Sally was really in the house, when Craddock, heroically, as a forlorn hope in a lost cause, offered to go and see, and going, said, "'Miss Nightingale, and is Dr. Vereker expected in to tea?' without varnish of style or redundance of wording. But Sally lent herself to this insincere performance, and remained in the hall until she was called on to decide whether she would mind coming in and waiting, and Dr. Vereker would perhaps be back in a few minutes. All this was part of the system of insincerity we have hinted at. So was the tenor of Sally's remarks, while she waited the few minutes, to the effect that it was a burning shame that she should take up Mrs. Vereker's time, a crying scandal that she should interrupt her knitting, and a matter of penitential reflection that she hadn't written instead of coming, which would have done just as well. To which Mrs. Vereker, with a certain parade of pretended insincerity, to make the real article underneath seem bona fide, replied with mock-incredible statements about the pleasure she always had in seeing Sally, and the rare good fortune which had prompted a visit at this time, when, in addition to being unable to knit owing to her eyes, she had been absorbed in longing for news of a current event that Sally was sure to know about. She particularised it. "'Oh, it isn't true, Mrs. Vereker. You don't mean to say you believed that nonsense. The idea! Tishy! Just fancy!' Goody Vereker, the name Sally thought of her by, couldn't shake her head. The fullness at the neck forbade it, but she moved it cosily from side to side continuously, much as a practicable image of Buddha might have done. "'My child, I've quite given up believing and disbelieving things. I wait to be told, then I ask if it's true. Now you've told me. It isn't true, and that settles the matter.' "'But whoever could tell you such nonsense, Mrs. Vereker?' "'A little bird, my dear.' The image of Buddha left off the movement of incredulity, and began a very gentle, slow nod. "'A little bird tells me these things.' all sorts of things but now i know this one's untrue i should never dream of believing it 
not for one moment sally felt inclined to pinch bite or otherwise maltreat the speaker so very worthless did her offer of optional disbelief seem and indeed so very offensive but her inclination only went the length of wondering how she could get at a vulnerable point through so much fat tishy quarrels with her mother i know said she but as to her doing anything like that besides she never told me besides i should have been asked to the wedding besides etc for you see what this elderly lady had asked the truth about was had or had not letitia wilson and julius bradshaw been married privately six months ago probably during eons and epochs of knitting she had dreamt that some one had told her this or even more probably she had invented it on the spot to see what change she could get out of sally she knew that sally prudently exasperated would give tongue whereas conciliatory cosy inquisition the right way to approach the elderly gossip would only make her reticent now it was only necessary to knit and sally would be sure to develop the subject the line she appeared to take was that it was a horrible shame of people to say such things in view of the fact that it was only yesterday that tishy had quite settled that rash matrimony in defiance of her parents would not only be inexcusable but wrong sally laid a fiery emphasis on the onlyness of yesterday and seemed to imply that had it been a week ago there would have been much more plausibility in the story of this secret nuptial of six months back besides she went on accumulating items of refutation julius has only his salary and tishy has nothing though of course she could teach besides julius has his mother and sister and they have only a hundred and fifty a year it does as long as they all live together but it wouldn't do if julius married on which the old goody sally told her mother after embarked on a long analysis of how joint housekeeping could be managed if tishy would consent to be absorbed into the bradshaw household she made rather a grievance of it that sally could not supply data of the sleeping accommodation at georgiana terrace bayswater if she had known that she could have got them all billeted on different rooms as it was she had to be content to enlarge on the many economies the family could achieve if they consented to be guided by a person of experience e g herself of course dinner would have to be late she said because of mr bradshaw not getting home till nearly eight they would have to make it supper and it might be cold it's a great saving and makes it so easy when there's one servant sally shuddered with horror at this implied british household poor tishy but they're not going to marry till they see their way she exclaimed in despair she felt that tishy and julius were being involved entangled enmeshed by an old matrimonial octopus in gilt-rimmed spectacles like professor wilson's who could knit tranquilly all the while while she herself could do nothing to save them it might be cold every evening perhaps who knows very proper my dear thus the octopus i felt sure such a nice sensible girl as miss wilson never would that is conrad it really was a sound of a latch-key but speech is no mere slave to fact and i was really quite glad when dr prosy came in the way the goody was going on about tishy so sally said to her mother when she had completed her report of the portion of this visit she chose to tell about on which her mother said 
"'What a dear little humbug you are, kitten!' And she replied, as we have heard her reply before, "'Well, there's nothing in that!' And posed as one who has been misrepresented. But her mother stuck to her point, which was that Sally knew she was quite glad when Dr. Vereker came in, tishy or no. Whatever the reason was that Sally was quite glad at the appearance of Dr. Prosy, there could be no doubt about the fact. Her laugh reached the cook in the kitchen, who denounced Craddock the parlour-maid for not telling her it was Miss Nightingale, when it might have been a visitor, seeing no noise come of it. Cook remarked she knew how it would be. There was the doctor picking up like, and hadn't she told Craddock so? But Craddock said no. "'Mrs. Shoesmith again, the everlasting Mrs. Shoesmith!' exclaimed the doctor. It was very unfeeling of them to laugh so over this unhappy woman, who was the survivor of two husbands and the proprietor of one, and the mother of seven daughters and five sons, each of whom was a typical case, and all of whom sought admission to institutes on their merits. The lives of the whole family were passed in applications for testimonials and certificates, alike bearing witness to their chronic qualifications for it. Sally was mysteriously hard-hearted about them, while fully admitting their claims on the public. "'That's right, Dr. Conrad,' Sally had inaugurated this name for herself. "'Honoria Purvis Shoesmith. Mind you put in the Purvis right. Now write down lots of diseases for her to have.' Sally is leaning over the doctor's chair to see him write as she says this. There is something in the atmosphere of the situation that seems to clash with the actual business in hand— the doctor endeavours, not seriously enough, perhaps, to infuse a flavour of responsibility. "'My professional dignity, Miss Nightingale, will not permit of the scheme of diagnosis you indicate. If any disorders entirely without symptoms were known to exist, I should be delighted to ascribe the whole of them to Mrs. Shoesmith.' "'Don't be prosy, Dr. Conrad. Fire away. You told me lots. You know you did. Rheumatic arthritis, gout, pyemia. "'Come, I say, Miss Sally, draw it mild. I never said pyemia. Anemia, perhaps?' "'Very well. And, then, we can let it go at that. Fire away!' The doctor looks round his own corner at the rows of pearls, and the laugh that frames them, the merry eyebrows and the scintillating eyes they accentuate. A perilous intoxication, not to be too freely indulged in by a serious professional man at any time, in business hours certainly not. But if the doctor were quite in earnest over a sort of Spartan declaration of policy his heart feels the prudence of, would that responsive twinkle flutter in his face behind its mock gravity? He is all but head over heels in love with Sally, so why pretend? Really, we don't know, and that's the truth. Wouldn't it be a good way to consider what it is that is really the matter, and make out the statement accordingly? He goes on looking at Sally, scratches himself under the chin with his pen, and waits for an answer. Good, sensible general practitioner. See how practical he is. Now, I should never have thought of that. Well, what shall we put her down as? Chronic arthritis? Spinal curvature? tuberculosis of the cervical vertebrae those all sound very nice but i don't think it matters which you choose if she hasn't got it now she'll develop it if i describe it when i told her mother couldn't get rid of her neuritis she immediately asked to know the symptoms and forthwith claimed them as her own 
"'Well, there now, and to think what I was just saying to Shoesmith this very morning, "'just in the crick of the thumb-joint, you can't hardly obey yourself.' "'And then she told how she said to Shoesmith frequent, "'where was the use of his getting impatient and exclaiming the worst expressions, "'because his language went beyond a quart and no reasonable excuse.' "'Mr. Shoesmith doesn't seem a very promising sort. "'He's a tailor, isn't he?' "'No, he's a messenger. "'He runs on errands and does odd jobs. "'But he can't run. "'I've seen him. "'He can only shamble. "'And his voice is hoarse and inaudible. "'And he has a drawback. two drawbacks, in fact. "'He's no sooner give coppers on a job "'than he drinks them.' "'What's the other?' "'His susceptibility to intoxicants. "'His head is that weak "'that most anything upsets him.' "'So you see.' poor chap he is handicapped in the race of life as for his wife when i saw her she was suffering with acute rheumatism and bad feeling and i may add defective reasoning power however the doctor fills in blanks adds a signature and says there we are and mrs shoesmith is disposed of as an applicant to the institution and will no doubt reap some benefits that we need not know the particulars of but she remains as a subject for the student of human life also tea comes. Also, which is interesting, Sally proceeds to make it. Now, if the reserves this young lady had made about this visit, if her pretence that it was a necessity arising from a charitable organisation, if the colour that was given to that pretence by her interview with the servant Craddock, if any of these things had been more or less than grossest hypocrisy, would it, we ask you, have been accepted as a matter of course that she should pull off her gloves and sit down to make tea with a mature knowledge of how to get the little linchpin out of the spirit lamp and of how many spoonfuls? No. The fact is, Sally was a more frequent visitor to the image of Buddha than she chose to admit, and as for the doctor, he seized every legitimate opportunity of cello practice at Krakatoa Villa. But GPs cannot call their time their own. "'The funny part of Mrs. Shoesmith,' said Sally, when the pot was full up and the lid shut, "'is that the moment she's brought into contact with warm soapy water and scrubbing brushes, she seems to renew her youth. She brings large pins out of her mouth and secures her apron, and then she scrubs.' "'Now you may blow the methylated out and make yourself useful, Dr. Conrad.' "'Does she put back the pins when she's done scrubbing?' the doctor asks, when he has made himself useful. "'She puts them back against another time, so I have understood. I suppose they live in her mouth. That's yours with two lumps. That's your mother's. No, I won't pour it yet. She's asleep.' For the fact is that the goody, anxious to invest herself with an appearance of forbearance towards the frivolities of youth, readiness to forego from amiability any share in the conversation insights into the rapport of others especially male and female rapport and general superiority to human weakness had endeavoured to express all these things by laying down her knitting folding her hands on her circumference and looking as if she knew and could speak if she chose but if you do this even the maintenance of an attentive hypodermic smile is not enough to keep you awake, and off you go. The goody did, and the smile died slowly off into a snore. Never mind, she was in want of rest, so she said. It was curious, too, for she seldom got anything else. It would have been unfeeling to wake her, so Dr. Vereker went and sat a good deal nearer Sally, not to make more noise than was necessary. 
This reacted, an outsider might have inferred, on the subject matter of the conversation, making it more serious in tone. And as Sally put the little Turk's cap over the pot to keep it warm, and the doctor knew perfectly well that the blacker the tea was the better his mother liked it, this lasted until that lady woke up with a start, a long time after, and said she must have been asleep. Then, as Cook was aware in the kitchen, some more noise came of it, and Sally carried off Mrs. Shoesmith's certificate. "'You know, Dr. Conrad, it makes you look like a real medical man,' she said at the gate, referring to the detention of the doctor's pill-box, which awaited him, and he replied that it didn't matter. King, the driver, looked as if he thought it did, and appeared morose. "'Is it because coachmen always keep their appointments with society, and society never keeps its appointments with coachmen, that a settled melancholy seems to brood over them, and their souls seem cankered with misanthropy?' The doctor had rather a rough time that evening, for among the patients he was going to try and see and get back to dinner, thus ran current speech of those concerned, there was a young man from the West Indies, who had come into something considerable, but he was afflicted with a disorder he called the jumps, and the doctor's diagnosis, if correct, showed that the vera causa of this aptly named disease was alcohol of S.P.G.R. something, to which the patient was in the habit of adding very few atoms of water indeed. The doctor was doing all he could to change the regimen, but only succeeded in making his patient weak and promise amendment. On this particular evening the latter quite unexpectedly went for the doctor's throat, shouting, "'I see your plans!' and King had to be summoned from his box to help restrain him. So Dr. Vereker was tired when he got home late to dinner, and would have felt miserable, only he could always shut his eyes and think of Sally's hands that had come over his shoulder to discriminate points in Mrs. Shoesmith's Magna Charta. They had come so near him that he could smell the fresh, sweet dressing of the new kid gloves, six and a half, we believe. But although he liked his goody mother to talk to him about the girl who had christened her so, he was tired enough this evening to wish that her talk had flowed in a less pebbly channel. For she chose this opportunity to enlarge upon the duties of young married women towards their husbands' parents, their mothers especially. Her conclusion was a little unexpected. "'I have said nothing throughout, my dear. I should not dream of doing so. But if I had, I trust I should have made it clearly understood how I regarded Miss Letitia Wilson's conduct.' "'But there wasn't any. Nobody contracted a private marriage. "'My dear Conrad, have I said that any one has done so? "'Have I used the expression private marriage?' "'Why, no, I don't think you have, not to-day, at least. "'When have I done so? "'Have I not, on the contrary, from the very beginning, "'told you I should take the first opportunity of disbelieving "'so absurd and mischievous a story?' "'And have I lost a moment? "'Was it not the first word I said to Sally Nightingale before you came in, "'and without a soul in the room to hear? "'I only ask for justice. "'But if my son misrepresents me, what can I expect from others?' "'At this point, patient toleration only. "'But, mother, dear, I don't want to misrepresent you, "'only I'll be hanged if I see why Tishy Wilson is to be hauled over the coals.' A suggestion of proper spirit showed itself. I am accustomed to your language, and will say nothing. But, my dear Conrad, for you are always my son, and will remain so, whatever your language may be, 
do you my dear conrad do you really sanction the attitude of a young lady who refuses to marry public and private don't come into the matter because of a groundless antipathy for it is admitted on all hands that mrs julius bradshaw is a person of rather superior class she's mrs bradshaw not mrs julius but what makes you suppose tishy wilson objects to her my dear conrad you know as well as i do that is a mere prevarication why evade the point but in my opinion you do wisely not to attempt any defence of letitia wilson it may be true that she has not laid herself open to misconstruction in this case but the lack of good feeling is to all intents and purposes the same as if she had and I must say, my dear Conrad, I am surprised that a professional man with your qualifications should undertake to justify her. But Miss Wilson hasn't done anything. What are you wigging away at her for, mother dear? Have I not expressly said that she has done nothing whatever? Of course she has not, and I hope never will but it is easy for you conrad to take refuge in a fact which i have been scrupulously careful to admit from the very beginning and wigging away what language never mind the language mother darling tell me what it's all about tired as he is he gets up from the chair he has not been smoking in because this is the drawing-room to go round and kiss what is probably the fatty integument of a very selfish old woman but which he believes to be that of an affectionate mother what's it all about he repeats my dear conrad is it not a little unfeeling to ask me what it's all about when you know i don't know mother dear i can do any amount of guessing but i don't know i think my dear if you will light my candle and ring for craddock to shut up that i had better go to bed which her son does but perversely abstains from giving the old lady any assistance to saying what it is in her mind to say but she did not intend to be baffled for when he had piloted her to her state apartment carrying her candle under injunctions on no account to spill the grease and a magazine of wraps and wools and unintelligible sundries she contrived to invest an elucidation of her ideas with an appearance of benevolence by working in a readiness to sacrifice herself to her son's selfish longing for tobacco only just hear me to the end my dear and then you can get away to your pipe what i did not say for you interrupted me did not relate so much to miss letitia wilson as to sally nightingale she i am sure would never come between any man she married and his mother. I am making no reference to any one whatever, although, however old I am, I have eyes in my head and can see. But I can read character, and that is my interpretation of Sally Nightingale's. Sally Nightingale and I are not going to make it up, if that's what you mean, mother. She wouldn't have me, for one thing my dear i am not going to argue the point it is nearly eleven and unless i get to bed i shan't sleep now go away to your pipe and think of what i have said and don't slam your door and wake me when you come up she offered him a selection to kiss shutting her eyes tight and he gave place to craddock and went away to his unwholesome smelly habit as his mamma had more than once called it his face was perplexed and uncomfortable however it got ease after a few puffs of pale returns 
and a welcome minute of memory of the bouquet of those sixes. But his little happy oasis was a very small one, for a messenger came with a furious pull at the night-bell and a summons for the doctor. His delirium tremens case had very nearly qualified its brain for a post-mortem, at least if there were any of it left, by getting at a pistol and taking a bad aim at it. The unhappy dipsomaniac was half shot, and prompt medical attendance was necessary to prevent the something considerable being claimed by his heir-at-law. Whether this came to pass or not does not concern us. This much is certain, that at the end of six months which this chapter represents, and which you have probably skipped, he was as much forgotten by the doctor as the pipe his patient's suicidal escapade had interrupted, or the semi-vexation with his mother he was using it as an anodyne for. End of chapter 25